Hello, welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In this episode, we'll be looking at the second half of, of Philip K. Dick and Roger Zelanzi's or seven, 1976 novel, Deus Ere. Uh, we talked about the we talked about uh, uh, you know the setting, the the religious conflicts at the heart of Deus Ares in the last episode. But let me just review a little bit of what's going on in this this novel. If you're just joining us. Uh, the heart of this novel is about a small community of survivors after a nuclear war called the Smash uh, in Charlottesville, Utah. It's a, it's a very small community. Most of the people are followers of the SOW, the Servants of, of Wrath, which is a religion that's emerged after the war that worships the instigator of, of the largest and most destructive bombing campaign during the war, uh, the man named Karl Luften, Luftenhelm. And he becomes elevated to a deity uh, under a religion that basically sees God as a god of wrath. And then this Karl Luftenhell is the is the avatar of, of God on Earth, the Deo series. There's still Christians though, and they they still sustain their their traditions and and their beliefs despite dwindling numbers and dwindling support. Now, one of the followers of the Sons of Wrath is a painter. He's a flamacalist. He doesn't have arms and legs. Uh, if you remember the happy, happy Harriton from Dr. Blood Bunny, it's the same kind of disorder. Um, he's a great painter, though, and he uses this apparatus to, to paint with where he's got these mechanical arms and legs, and he's on a cart pulled by a, pulled by a cow, and that's how he gets around. He's been ordered to, to paint a church mural um, on depicting the God of Wrath, the, the Deus Ere. Uh, he can't do it, though, because he doesn't have a realistic picture of him. So he has to go on a pilgrimage to actually find Karl Luchtenfeld, who is still alive, apparently. And he goes off on that. He, before he's doing that, he consults with the Christians. And the Christians are a man named Dr. Abernathy and his, his kind of follower, uh, Peter Sands. Uh, and they both have an interest in seeing Tibor McMaster, this this painter, not achieve his goal. They don't want to necessarily kill him, but they don't want to they don't want to see the sons of of wrath have a have a renaissance. A lot of a lot of what's going on in this novel is a kind of a theological debate about Gnosticism, and I talked about that in the last episode. That a lot of the religious goals of these characters are connected to the themes of Gnosticism, such as trying to find a trying to find like knowledge being more important than, than sin. The idea that God has these kind of avatars on earth called demiurges. This is also an, an idea that's played within this, in this novel. But above everything is, is a debate over representation. How can one represent the divine in art? And the Christian point of view was that what matters is the spiritual experience, not the accurate depiction. Tibor McMaster's The Painter wants to actually have the accurate depiction of the God of Wrath. And so he's actually seek, seek him out physically and see him. Um, who, 
you know, he doesn't even really know if he's alive. It's just rumors that he's still alive, but he still goes on this pilgrimage for that reason. You know, and the idea there is the authentic religious experience requires the authentic depiction of, of, of God. Now, this can be read in many different ways, right? Like even to the, to the level of the text, right? Does it matter if the text is the accurate, true text, the true word of God? Or does it matter just the religious experience one has when reading the text, whether it's a, a fake copy or something? So this, this kind of question of representation runs throughout the entire novel all the way to the climax. And that's, that's really the heart of, of the story, it seems to me. Now, the setting of this is a, is a post-apocalyptic setting uh, set about 15 years after the war, but that 15 years has been enough time for all kinds of animal life to evolve into sentience. So there's bird people, there are uh, lizard people, bug people living in the wastelands between the small cities where there's just a few humans live. Um, and in the part we talked about last time, uh, Tibor Mimgaster leaves on his pilgrimage. He meets some of these strange creatures. He gets stuck. He finally uh, runs into a group that's sort of a lizard people who want to help him. His car is breaking down, so they take him to an auto fact. I didn't talk about this last time, but they take him to an auto fact. And the auto fact is sort of malfunctioning and is very bitter and talks back to his, his quote-unquote customer. Um, he's asking for like lube oil for his for his tire. He leaves frustrated at the behavior of the autofac, and then he has this very interesting scene where he encounters a sentient worm that he slays, revealing his hoard of wealth, which is basically just junk he's collected from, you know, wandering around the post-apocalyptic landscape. But after putting his hands in and tasting the blood of the worm, he's able to listen to and understand a bird. Now, this is a scene directly out of, of Wagner's Siegfried. I thought about this, and I'm absolutely convinced that this is fully inspired or, or just a direct plagiarism of, of the scene from Wagner, which, of course, Wagner got it from Norse mythology. And I don't know you know, exactly if where, if you go to the Nibelungenlied, those early texts that Wagner based his, his um, operas off of, if, if you have that there. But it's, it's directly from that opera, I'm convinced. And that's where he left off. So Tibor Masters is able to listen to this bird. He's able to have a conversation with the bird. The other part of the story, very briefly, is chapters five and six of, of the novel are, allow us to see Carl Luftenfeld. He is taking care of a 25-year-old mentally handicapped woman who calls him daddy all the time. She's overweight. She's... Uh, you know, he has severe disabilities, mental disabilities. Um, Carl uh, Luften, Luftenfeld, uh, at, you know, is trying to remove the shrapnel from his brain. And there's a very gruesome scene where he removes this bit of shrapnel from his head. Uh, he passes out and there's blood all over his face. And Alice, this, this young girl, actually creates kind of a Shroud of Turin facial image by putting a T-shirt you know, on his, on his face and taking his blood um, into kind of a mask thing. Um, later on, he, he's kind of in a bunker in kind of an air raid shelter or something with these rats, and he has this weird conversation with, this, with, with these rats. Um, and it seems he's kind of going off, and, and we're going to run into him in the story, but there is a little bit of setup of his, his story. But they're very weird chapters, and, and I, I kind of skimmed over them, but they're, they're fun to read, but a bit challenging and if you just read it through to the first time to know quite what's going on with with this particular character but we learn at the end of those chapters that this is Carl Luftenfeld himself alive and well and and venturing out on the road 
So uh, that's that's where we're at. So let's let's pick up. We're we're picking up with chapter chapter ten. So in chapter ten, Tibor McMaster's is is essentially talking to this this bird um, who who's able to communicate with him. They talk about various things. They talk about the God of Wrath. Now Tibber McMaster's cart is broken. He's lost his wheel, so he needs help. He's he's basically helpless here um, with his cow, and and the bird says he'll help. He goes and like investigates a nearby town. Comes back a little bit later and reports that it's a town full of full of weird mut- mutations. Um, and we get all this description of these different posthumanisms that have emerged. Uh, quote. And some have a single eye in the center of their head, cyclopism, I believe it's called. And with others, when they're born, their height is cracked and dried and sprouting a heavy coat of dark, coarse fur that covers the baby. And then there was one where, that, where its fingers just came out of its chest. It had no arms, just like you, and no legs, just fingers protruding from the ribcage. It lived almost a year, I understand. It made obscene gestures from time to time, but no one was really sure if it was intentional. Um, so there's... But it seems that this town is very fearful of, of these incompletes. That's what they're called. The, the, they're incompletes. Um, so they might not welcome Tibor McMasters if he comes in. But on the other hand, he might have things that he might be able to trade for them. <clears throat> so anyways, Tibor writes a note, gives it to the bird, and so, you know basically has the bird go off for help. Now, we never see the bird come back, and so the bird doesn't really help him. And maybe it's all kind of a hallucination of his or in his imagination. But... For, you know the bird just just take off with his with his note and never never comes back with with help. So then we have a long scene where Tibbert McMaster is just sitting by himself in the cart waiting for help, and you know no one comes. I think the dog comes. The, the dog he befriended earlier in the story comes to comes to companion to join him, but really no help comes. He thinks should I release the cow? The cow's going to die if he doesn't you know let him go. He's kind of preparing for his death, and this is when he has a vision of the of the God of Wrath coming to him, the Deus Eri arriving to him and talking with him. And the, the God of Wrath claims to have sent the bird to to help him. But the really interesting conversation they have is about the bodily form of of God, and and back to this theme of representation: Can you represent God, and or is that futile? So the God says, the bird led you closer to me, close enough for me to greet you myself as I wanted to, as I had to do. I have two bodies. One you're seeing now, it is eternal, uncorruptible, like the body Christ appeared in after the resurrection, when Timothy met him and pushed his hand into Christ's womb. Side, Tibor said, into his side, and it was Thomas. The God of wrath darkened cloudily. His figures began to become transparent. You have seen this guise, the God of wrath declared, this body. But there's another body, a physical body which grows old and decays, a corruptible body, as Paul put it. You must not find that. Now, during this conversation, Tibor McMasters seems to have his arms and legs back briefly. And he realizes how, what a great artist he could be if he had his arms and legs and didn't have to work through this contraption. But when the God of wrath leaves, basically warning him to not continue this pilgrimage because he would just be depicting a corruptible fallen body, not not the true body of, of God, you know, the, the arms and legs are back to, to normal. So that's, that's all of chapter 10 and quite a lot goes on here. And it's, it's, it's rather, it's all very interesting. A lot of it seems to be Tibor McMaster's hallucinations um, or, or fantasies or, 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 or whatever, but you know, you can take it literally if you want to. He does seem to have this image of the God of wrath and he's told essentially that it's futile to try to, depict a corrupted fallen body 
Well, chapter 11 takes us to Peter Sands. And there was hints earlier in the novel that this Christian was going to try to stop Tipper McMaster's. But um, we actually see him now heading out just like a day later. But he's trying to follow Tipper McMaster's on his pilgrimage, trying to stop him. And there's an ongoing debate in his head whether how far he's going to go to stop him. Would he kill him or not? And Dr. Abernathy, who you can talk to through a communication device, tells him that that's essentially uh, killing someone and, and you're not supposed to kill them. But Sands tries to pirouette on this saying, really, the Hebrew says, thou shall not murder. And would it be murder to stop someone from doing this horrible thing, depicting the, the God of wrath, which would be so devastating to Christianity? So he is not sure how far he's going to go, but he he, he, he sort of wants to help Tibor McMaster too and make sure he's okay because he doesn't think he actually is going to succeed in this this pilgrimage. And he basically decides he's just going to act and see where it goes. Quote, I'll be damned if I go in that way, he informed himself. If Tibor's in there, well, then I'm just out of luck. Or so is he. After all, I'm trying to help him. Or am I? He felt utterly confused. I won't know either way until the time comes, he realized. Like an existentialist, I'll infer my state from the actions I perform. Thought follows deed as Mussolini thought. In Anfang war der Tat as Goethe said in Faust. In the beginning was the deed, not the word, as John taught. John in his Logos doctrine, the Greekization of theology, end quote. Um, now, the general fan of uh, Dick's interest in Gnosticism is an interest in that period of Christianity in that first and second century before that quote-unquote Greek, Greekification before the the focus on the logos i guess and you know i'm not a big expert on it i talked a little bit about in the, in the last episode but it seems this christianity of this period is more of that gnostic variety and there's some hostility to those greek and those later church fathers influences so there's a passage where where like all i think it's actually from the sons of wrath where all the later christian thought after you know like Augustine and Aquinas is all kind of thrown out the window as, as useless. And it seems the Christian community seems to build on that and, and share those same ideas. At least Peter Sands does. So Peter Sands has to go on this uh, pilgrimage himself. He has to go through kind of the same challenges that Tibor McMaster had to go through. And one of those is he's going to have to face the great sea, this, this compu- supercomputer, which sends out projections of itself in the form of kind of like these mechanical devices in the shape of women to collect people to bring back to the supercomputer where it'll be th- the people will be thrown into a vault of acid and, and broken down to their constituent parts so it can sustain the computer's energy. Um, now, it goes through this game, though, of the three-question game, right, where you have to ask the three questions, and if you can trick it, if you can find something it doesn't know, it lets you pass. This was all done in the story of the Great Sea, which is a pretty interesting story Dick wrote back in the 1950s. So he's worrying about that that future, but he, he doesn't think Tibor could have gone that far. So he thinks he has hope of, of getting in touch with them. Chapter uh, 11 ends, though, with this female figure approaching him, uh, which he knows right away is an extension of the Great Sea. Now, Tibor McMaster's earlier had killed one of them, had shot it with a Derringer destroying it. So this is actually another projection. It's not clear how many the Great Sea has, but we, we presume it's limited in this post-apocalyptic environment. It actually turns out these aren't that hard to kill, which is, which is kind of funny. It loses essentially two of these in, in two days. Um, so chapter 12, uh, right away, the, this 
female extension of the of the great sea asks him about albert einstein peter knows about albert einstein again it there's a bit of a i think a conflict in this novel in that dick on some level wants to set it far in the future where there's a question of whether knowledge will be retained there's even a, a conversation earlier in the story about carl i think it's carl luftenfeld's theory that a nation doesn't reside in the people but it resides in its knowledge so as long as you can preserve knowledge some people will pick it up in the future and, and, and revive it, right? So knowledge can survive even if the people die. And this is, again, kind of a Gnostic fascination with, with the seeking of the true knowledge. You know, finding truth in, you know, the, the seeking of truth, not so much the experience or not so much a focus on sin, but a focus on actually seeking out um, the reality of, of God. For Karl Luftenfeld, it was the truth of the nation, which could be preserved in its in its texts and then therefore restored. So this seems to, but this is a conversation to have like centuries after the nuclear war, right? That'd be an interesting story. I guess you have uh, Canticle for Leibowitz, which was a novel that kind of dealt with this question of how knowledge can be sustained long term. But at the same time, he wants to have this quest. Dick and Zelanzi want to have this quest where they seek out Karl Luftenfeld. And to do that, you need to have it not set that far after a nuclear war or Karl Luftenfeld would be dead. So, you know, he, it's a, I think the, the narratives have been conflicted in this way, even with the these animals that have evolved. You know, 15 years isn't going to be enough time for these mutants to evolve, you know, even if you kind of stretch your imagination. But he wants those creatures in there because they're kind of fun and, and allows allows them to do some things on this quest portion of the story. But um, anyways, uh, challenging someone 15 years after nuclear war about Albert Einstein isn't that impressive to me. But that's what the Great Sea does. And Peter knows about um, Albert Einstein. Now, there's actually an interesting moment here where the Great Sea lies and says, Albert Einstein visited me and consulted me. And Peter calls the Great Sea out on the lie, saying that's not possible because Albert Einstein died before you were even created. So they go into this long back and forth, and Peter is really interested in trying to get the Great Sea to admit that that Tibor McMaster's passed through. Eventually, you know, it confesses that that Tibor McMaster's did go through. Um, now he doesn't want to play the question game, though, the way Tibor McMaster's did. He did play the question game. He doesn't want to, so he's trying to get around him and just kind of force his way through and he's about to actually be killed or captured by the great sea when a man comes and a man starts jumps on the projection of the great sea and starts trying to unscrew something from its head and threatens it and says like if you don't let peter sands go i'm gonna like destroy you forces the great sea to think whether it wants to lose a projection or or, or fight for this meal now eventually the great sea's extension is able to like knock out the hunter that's what he calls her, calls him the hunter. And Peter's able to get away, but the Great Sea's robot extension drags the body to to its realm, to its domain, where, it will, where the hunter will be reduced into a vault of acid to sustain the life of this supercomputer. So that's the end of chapter 12. It's really Peter Sands' encounter with the Great Sea and the introduction of this, this hunter character, who seems to, at this moment, to just you know be out of the picture. In chapter 13, Peter Sands follows another moment in Tibor McMaster's quest, and this is the, the encounter with uh, 
the auto fact. So first he meets like the bug people, and he at one point he meets a dung, a giant dung beetle, sentient dung beetle. But he's taken to this auto fact, and it's a really fun moment. We because Tibor McMaster's met the auto fact and was frustrated by its attitude and its behavior. It seems to have become cynical and bitter after after the war, but it still tries to help people. And in fact, it actually. At, at one point in the conversation with Peter says, you know, the pre- got previous guy, he didn't pick up what I made for him. And it was actually the lube, the, 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 the oil that he wanted. Now, what Peter wants is a, is a better bicycle. And he asked for a better bicycle and it makes like tricycles. And he asked, no, no, I don't want those. And, you know, try again. And it makes pogo sticks for him. And it's, it's kind of a humorous scene where you kind of have this, it seems malfunctioning autofac that's still trying to help people, but has developed this bitterness and cynicism and uh, fun fun with Philip K. Dick AIs, I guess, in, in this moment. Not the insidious evil autofact of the story autofact, just a, a much more playful representation of, of an autofact solely going mad. So in chapter 14, Peter's continuing to travel uh, on the route following the path that Tibber would have taken when he runs into the hunter, the hunter had, who had gotten away from the... The great scene explains how he did this, that basically he had already mostly unscrewed this bolt, this nut on on the thing's head. And he just, as soon as he had the moment, he finished unscrewing it, destroying the extender and he got away. So it was, a, it was easy for him to get away. Um, and then he, they, they have a conversation. He introduces himself as, as Jack Schuld. Um, and he's, he reveals himself that he is a hunter and he's on a quest. Um, basically, by the end of the, it, doesn't take long for for Peter Sands to extract it out of him that that he's working for a, a kind of a police group seeking out Carl Luftenfeld. So his target, he's a hunter, and his target is Carl Luftenfeld, and he's, he's supposed to assassinate him on behalf of a police agency. And then this interest brings in another interesting moral dilemma for Peter Sands. You know. Is it murder to help a police agency track down someone who's been sentenced to death? Um, and Peter Sands seems to think it isn't. And he actually will have a debate later on with Peter Abern- Dr. Abernathy about this. So it's kind of the, you know, this this is that render under Caesar, that which is Caesar, render under God, that, that which is God, you know, um, that is part of the Christian tradition. I think that's from Paul's letters. So anyways, the hunter's plan, this um, Schultz plan, is to track down Tibor McMaster's accompany him to find Carl Luftenfeld and then give him the chance to to kill him. Peter Sands uh, thinks he can use this as he can have an opportunity here then to essentially trick Tibor McMaster's into, you know, maybe helping with the assassination or maybe getting Tipper McMasters to depict someone else. Like if they come along and say, Hey, that's Carl Luftenfeld, you know, take, you know, draw your picture based on him, but it'd be the wrong person. And that's essentially what happens in the, in the story, by the way. But he starts to work out this various options now that he has with this, um, Jack Schult following or accompanying them. In chapter 15, uh, you have, uh, Tipper McMaster and this dog still waiting for help despairing he's still calling for help and peter and this jack schultz arrive and and offer their help um they basically present themselves as as people are going to help tipper mcmasters find carl luftenfeld 
um, I, I, yeah, I think at this point they, they don't reveal, he doesn't reveal to, to Tibber his main quest. I don't think he ever really does. And they have a conversation about Karl Luftenfeld and the hunter goes into this very interesting conversation about what this, about the role of, of the Deus Eri, of Karl Luftenfeld in the world. That kind of gets into this broader critique of modernity, which of course Dick is, is very fond of, of making. Quote, I have traveled widely and I have seen much of the world, both before and after. I lived through the days of the destruction. I saw the cities die, the countryside wilt. I saw the pallor come upon the land. There was still some beauty in those old days, you know. The cities were hectic, dirty places, but at certain moments, usually times of arrival and departure, looking down upon them at night, all lit up, say from a plain or a cloudless sky, you could almost see for a moment, call upon that vision out of St. Augustine, Urdi et Orbi, perhaps, for a clear instant. You want... And once you got away from the towns on a good day, there's a lot of green and brown sprinkled with all the other colors, clear running water, sweet air. But the day came, the wrath descended, sin, guilt, retribution, the manic psychoses of the entities we refer to as states, institutions, systems, the powers, the thrones, the dom dominations, the things which perpetually merge with men and emerge from them, our darkness externalized and visible. However you look upon these matters, the critical point was reached. The wrath descended. The good, the evil, the beautiful, the dark, the cities, the country, the entire world, all were mirrored for that instant with the unpraised blade. The hand that held that blade was Karl Luftenfeld. In the moment that it plunged towards our heart, it was no longer the hand of a man, but that of the Deus Aries, the God of wrath himself. That which remains, remains exists by virtue of his sufferance. If there is to be any religion at all, I see this as the only tenable credo. What other construction could be placed upon the events? That is how I see Karl Luftenfeld. How I feel you, I, he must be preserved in your art. That is why I'm willing to point him out for you. End quote. Now, this is, of course, all a lie. And I'll just tell you, it's revealed eventually anyways, that, that Peter Schultz is Karl Luftenfeld in, in disguise. In fact, you know this right away because he talks about a head wound he's recently had. And he wears a helmet to kind of cover this up. But, you know, it's not hard to figure out that he's the guy who extracted the shrapnel from his head in, in Chapter 4. Um, so his, now his motivation does seem to be to kill Karl Luftenfeld, at least symbolically, if not to die himself. He, he's changing his identity. He's, he's leaving, he's becoming a wanderer. Um, so to, in some way he is attempting the destruction of this, of, of Karl Luftenfeld. Um, now later, um, it's just Peter and Jack talking and the plan here that, Pete seems to develop is it's a little more clearly in his mind that maybe they just find a decoy, a fake Karl Luftenfeld, point it out to Tipper McMaster's, have him paint it, and then he can go back to Charlottesville, do his mural. Meanwhile, they can continue on their he can continue on his quest to to kill Karl Luftenfeld. Um, now, in chapter sixteen, uh, well, Jack Schulten approaches Tibor and and tells him, lying lying to him, saying that he is actually the person who commissioned the the mural in the first place that he's a high-ranking official in the sons of of wrath and that he's there to help him and to kind of ensure that he completes his quest peter meanwhile is having the same debate in his head whether he should participate in the killing of carl luftenfeld and whether that's that's murder or not and he thinks a lot about what dr abernathy would say um, now, just briefly, we, we flip to a scene with Alice, you know, Carl Luftenfeld's little adopted uh, mentally handicapped girl. 
where she's playing with a doll and looking for her dad. And that's just a very brief, brief scene. The climax of this chapter uh, really comes with with the killing of 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 Jack Schuld by Tibber McMaster when he runs he comes across Jack Schuld killing his dog that dog Toby that has been following him um, for much of his quest in anger. Then Tibber McMaster uses his extenders to kill to kill Jack Schuld. So in chapter 17, there's not much they can do, but they continue on, on the quest looking for Carl Luftenfeld. Uh, eventually, they, they stop in a barn and they run into this homeless guy who, uh, kind of a homeless drunk who's living in this barn. I guess he's not homeless. He has a barn, but he's a drunk, right? And Peter, Peter Sands basically works out with him that he's going to pose as Carl Luftenfeld and, and confess who he is to to Tibor McMasters. And that's what happens. So this this drunk man claims to be Carl Luftenfeld, uh, giving, of course, a chance for Tibor McMasters to take a photo, to take a video, and then have what he needs to paint his paint his mural back in, in Charlotte, Charlottesville, Utah. So chapter 18, uh, we're with Alice, who's wandering the streets, and she has a vision of her, her father, Carl Luftenfeld, seeming coming towards her. Um, quote, her daddy approached step by step in a certain measured fashion as if a solemn dance towards her. And then he seated himself silently, indicating to her to be seated too. It was odd, she thought, that he did not speak, that he only gestured. There was about to be a peacefulness she had never witnessed before, as if time had rolled back for him, making him both younger and more gentle. She liked him better this way, the fear she had always felt towards him beginning to leave her, and she reached out haltingly to touch his arm. Her fingers passed through her arm, and it came to her then in an instant in a twinkling of an eye, a flash of insight that this was only a spirit, that, as the Lizzie had said, her daddy was dead. His spirit had stopped on its way back to be with her, to spend a final moment resting by her side on the road with her. That is why he could not speak. Spirits could not be heard. But the spirit is able to do something for her, and essentially it lifts her her mental retardation from from her curing her of that, and then the lizards that she's encountering on the road, I you know realize that she's not not handicapped. Here's how uh, they describe it: a membrane of some nature had been removed from her mind. She could see it in the sense that she could comprehend now what she had never comprehended. Grace and around her, she saw in truth, in very truth, a different world—the world comprehensible to her at last, if only for an interval. So what do we make of this? Well, it seems that this Carl Luftenfeld, who is able to project himself as a spirit and, and perform a miracle on, on his daughter, his adopted daughter, suggests that maybe he, he was an extension of God, right? If you want to have that reading of this novel, that he is a demiurge, he was an avatar of God, he, you know, the, he did do this thing, destruction of the world for, for the God of wrath, and now in his death, he... He's, a, he's able to, to be the spirit and perform miracles. Uh, I guess that's the point here. Does this make the servants of wrath the, the true religion? After we say goodbye to Alice, we, we catch up with Dr. Abernathy back in town, thinking about the consequences of this quest. What will be, you know, what will be the future of Christianity and the sons of, of wrath? Um, is there a future for Christianity? Would they? Would the Christians be defeated? Uh, what would be the impact of of the success, the quote unquote success of Tiberg Masters, 
journey. In fact, Dr. Abernathy was the one who said you don't need to have the actual picture of Carl Luftenfeld to do the mural. All that matters is the spiritual experience one has in, in observing the mural. It could be a picture of anyone. But, you know, it was Tibber who wanted the, the real picture of, of the Deus Ere. Now, chapter 19 is simply a little epilogue where we learn that Tibor Masters comes back. He paints the mural. It's one of the great works of, uh, of, of human art history, comparable to the Renaissance greats. Um, it's his last great work, though, but he is remembered and, and sort of canonized by the Sons of Wrath for, for that achievement. And he becomes... He becomes honored. You know, the last paragraph of the of the book is, quote, his last two cars, cows were killed and stuffed and placed one on each side of his great merch to gaze solemnly and glacingly at the tourists who came to pay homage to the renowned painting. Tibor McMasters himself was finally made a saint of the church. His gravesite is unknown. Several cities proudly claim it. And and that's the story. That's the the brief story of Deus Eri. Um Really a, a tough novel, I think, to to fully appreciate or to understand. Um, there's a lot of Gnostic influences in the, in the novel, and it's not all fully explained very well. It's it's hinted at. There's, you know, if, if Dickens or Lanzi had more time to maybe flesh out this theology and make it clearer to the reader, I think the novel would be stronger for it. Um, it's, it's not a novel. If you want a novel of, of an adventure, a pilgrimage, and a post-apocalyptic environment, you're not really going to get this. There are fun chapters, but those chapters are so tongue-in-cheek, so ridiculous with these weird lizard people and bird people and the recreation of the scene from Siegfried with the talking bird. And much of the novel, Tibor Mgatzer is just stuck on the road with a broken wheel. So if you want a kind of uh, this handicapped person going on this quest, you're not going to really get it here the quest is is actually just a few days where he he goes out and, and finds this drunk guy comes to believe that this is Carl Luftenfeld and returns to do his his mural so it builds up to be this great quest and it doesn't really become that at all so if you want a kind of a dark tale of the journey in a post-apocalyptic landscape you're not going to get that uh, really you come to this novel to try to get at Dick's understanding of Christianity and and particularly in his kind of ten, his his advocacy for kind of a Gnostic reading of the Christian tradition, really focusing on that early Christian writings, not the not the stuff that comes later with the Nicene Council and all that. But it's not it's never really clearly stated here. I think thematically, though, the question of representation of, of religious figures is very, very interesting. Um, you know, there's not only one quick mention of, of Islam here, but that's, of course, a major theme in the Islamic tradition as well, with this idea that Muhammad is the is the, the final prophet who delivers God's words directly from God's mouth, essentially, through the angel Gabriel. And that's why the Quran has to be read in Arabic and all that, because it's the literal word of God, you know, not a translation, not an adaptation of it. But a lot of traditions in the monotheistic faith you know deal with this question of iconography can you have depictions of of the divine at all you know what's the value of that is it just a spiritual exercise and it doesn't really matter if it if it's a true picture is it possible to get a true picture you know we're given a religion here where it's possible at least theoretically to get an extra depiction of of their their essentially their christ their you know in the sense the god of the avatar of the god of wrath 
But and I think it's a it's really an interesting conversation. If you, if you want to explore that, if it's something that in, inspires you, you might want to check out this novel. What I like about it is I I like the early chapters where we have this look at this post-apocalyptic community. I I really like Dick's take on the post-apocalyptic community, showing them as a bit cooperative and and having some degree of solidarity and and the idea of a new religion emerging out of a war. Of course, you know, even in Fallout, you have that. You have like people worship the bomb and all that. Uh, So it's not a new idea, but it's explored kind of well here. And I I think it's a fairly well-developed tradition we're, we're, we're exposed to with the sons of the servants of wrath. I also, I like the the image we get of the post-apocalyptic landscape. I like the, the malfunctioning AIs, the Great Sea and the autofact going kind of crazy in the aftermath of the war. I, and I actually, I like these, these weird mutant creatures. I, I think they're placed awkwardly in a novel that's supposed to be set only 15 years or so after a war. But, you know, had Dick and Zelaney been able for, you know, to put this generations after, right? course then you couldn't have the quest for Carl Luftenfeld maybe maybe have him frozen in in cryo or something then you could have had it but you know in the way they frame it it needs to be pretty recent after the war but if this was set generations later you could have a lot of fun with these different species that 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 evolve through through mutation and I actually like that stuff it's fun and and enjoyable um so, I don't know, that's all I really have to say about Darius Ares. Thematically, of course, Gnosticism is the key theme. Um, there's a little bit on... Well, there's the conversion experience, I think, is the one that's key here. And, and the authentic conversion versus the utilitarian conversion is played with. Tibor McMaster seems to be a follower of the Servants of Wrath, but he's given the option of converting to Christianity. And his reason for doing this would be to avoid having to go on the pilgrimage. There are false fronts here. That's, of course, a classic Philip Dick trope. Uh, mostly it's in the character of Carl Luftenfeld, who puts on different masks throughout the story. Um, you know, as the hunter, as the, the head of the Servants of Wrath, as that Jack Schultz. So there's a little bit with that. But there's not the, the reality-bending narratives that we see, um, except if you want to look at kind of some of Tip Art Master's experiences with the talking bird and the, the, the meaning of the the God of Wrath, if these are bendings of realities, if they're hallucinations, um, there's that. There's a little bit on drug use early on with Peter Sands trying to use drugs to have authentic religious experiences. And I think that's, um, you know, coming out of that kind of late 60s, early 70s culture around LSD. Um, and of course, that was part of the arg- you know, the people who like to use LSD claim made claims that there were religious experiences tied to it. And that's something Peter Sands is experimenting with. But by and large, the themes of this novel are theological. Um, so that's that. I, I hope I said enough about it. I don't know. I, I find this novel kind of tough to, to, to talk about, to be honest. So I'm going to cut it short here um, with that. Um, so what's coming up next? Well, in future episodes, we have... Eye of the Sybil would be my next episode. We'll look at a short story. This was written, I think, in 1976, but it wasn't published till till Dick's collected stories were put together. So, but we'll look at that next, which is a story about the oracle, essentially the the Roman oracles, the Sybil. 
Um, that'll be a short episode, and then we'll just jump on to talk about A Scanner Darkly, which in my mind is Dick's last great novel. It's also one of his longest novels. Um, and, I, and I think it's up there as one of his, his best, but it's the last novel he writes before he really starts to explore the Vallis stuff and his last four novels. Um, Vallis, Divine Adventure, Transmigration of Timothy Archer, and Raider Free Albermuth were, were all kind of tied together in that Vallis stuff. So um, we'll be ending our series in the 1970s actually pretty quick after we look at A Scanner Darkly. And there might be a few short stories, but by and large, we're, we're going to be moving on to the 80s, pretty soon to the last few years of Dick's life. So... Um, so if you're reading along, you know, pick up your copy of A Scanner Darkly and start reading into it. I'll give you my thoughts on that. And that time, I think I will do five episodes on it because it is a longer novel and there's a lot to, to talk about in this, this story. I'm looking forward to it. Um, but that's it for now. So, but let me know what you think. I'm sure there's a lot I messed up with and, and didn't talk about. I'm not really as strong with this aspect of Dick's thinking, the Gnostic philosophy is something I'm a bit blinkered with. I'm not as comfortable talking about, obviously. But if you have some insight into this, please let me know. Leave your comments below or send me an email at 100pagescast at, at gmail.com. And I'll, I'll, I'll try to share what you, what you give me. Uh, thanks, as always, for listening. And I'll see you next time with Eye of the Sibyl. To feel these changes happening